Our scripture today is from 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. There is a benefit and yet a burden having an office administrator with theological training. A person of that sort is capable and apparently willing to put little directives and notes into what you're doing and planning to work on. You, we've got a, an administrator who, like me, has been exposed to biblical Greek and Hebrew and the Aramaic language that was spoken in New Testament days. And so our office administrator did not merely receive my scripture title and text, but read it and thought about it and put an addition to my title, you're the one. Jeffrey added an exclamation point to my sermon title. 
And the burden of that reality is Jeffrey has directed me in such a way as to say, go on and preach this. Don't mess around with this. There's a demand that comes from the exclamation point that Jeffrey has gifted me with. Thank you, Jeffrey. You're the one is the title. Nathan, as we begin, we don't know a lot about Nathan. I think he's only appeared once before this passage in Scripture. And a total of four or five times do we read about the prophet Nathan. But a thing to know about any prophet of Israel in that time is that they stood in a place that had never existed before them and has never again existed after them. The prophets of Israel had the authority and the expectation of guiding the king. Israel was what is known as a theocracy. That is to say, the real head of state was God in heaven. And God would speak to the prophet and the prophet would speak to the king and both were supposed to listen. But that does not take away Nathan's dilemma because all the kings of Israel were human. And when you have the power of the kingdom and the humanity that is governed by how you feel about people and how they talk to you, then it's not always safe to go and give redirection to the king. We're familiar with the phrase, kill the messenger. It's a phrase that the prophets of Israel lived with on a day-to-day basis. So David is in trouble with God. David has overstepped in his responsiveness to Uriah's wife Bathsheba. It would have been good as the head of state to simply say, don't we have some lovely people in Israel? But David found Bathsheba to be too lovely for a passing comment and sent for her and slept with her and impregnated her and then to cover his tracks sent her husband into battle to be killed. David has overstepped. He's out of line. He is not acting in accord with the will of God. And it falls upon Nathan to go to David and to make him more aware of his error. I had a co-worker at AT AT&T who, in reading this text read the part at the end of this morning's reading where it said, essentially, I've blessed you greatly, and if you had asked for more, I would have blessed you with more. And so my co-worker concluded that if David had asked God's permission to sleep with Uriah's wife, God would have given Bathsheba to him. That's not my reading of the text. I've not 
got any reason to think that God goes around confiscating folks' wives and giving them to someone else. I do believe the part where God says, the more you ask me for blessings, the more blessed you will be. I'll buy into that. But not just any blessing. We don't get to prescribe our own blessings. We can ask God for anything, and sometimes God's answer to our prayers will be no. David is culpable. There is no mistake in this. It doesn't change who David is. David is still a heroic and a sympathetic figure as he goes up against Goliath. David is still the champion of the people as he led them into war even before he was king. David is still the shepherd on the hillside who protected the flocks and was willing to go up against wild animals in the discharge of his duty. That whole notion of thy rod and thy staff comes from David who's willing either to pull the lamb out of the thicket with the crook of the staff, but if necessary, beat down the wolf with the rod. David is a sympathetic figure, but on this occasion, David is dead wrong. Needs to know it and hasn't seemed to notice it. And so Nathan tells him this story. The story about the ewe lamb, I think the story works better because it's a young little lamb, a little cute lamb. This lamb that the man treated more as a member of the family or at least a pet than dinner. That ewe lamb was not purchased by that poor man to become his dinner or anybody else's dinner. That you lamb was a member of the family, lived in the household with the, with the poor man. And the man who is in the story, the rich man, had plenty of sheep. Plenty of sheep. They didn't even mention how many, how large his herd was. This rich man who had an unlimited supply of food entertained company by butchering this other man's property and serving it to his house guests. And because this only works because David was a compassionate man. He's more good than he is bad. The story works on him because he cares about people. David is a good man, a good king, who cares about the people, and he was ready and able to defend this poor man who had been mistreated in this way. And that's when the words, you're the one, come into the story. David said, whoever did that ought to suffer death because of this horrible treatment of this poor man. And Nathan said, you're the one, David. You know how they talk in biblical time and in kingdoms. Oh, king, live forever. You have abridged the life expectations 
and the entitlements to life that this man had. Speaking both of the disrespect toward Bathsheba and the disrespect showed to Uriah, David gave the order to cover his tracks that Uriah should be sent back to the field of battle and given a mission that would take him in the direct line of fire that would assure his death. Better I have you killed than to let you know what I have done with your wife. I would rather have David say, I'm the king, you can't do anything about it, but you need to know I've been sleeping with your wife. Uriah couldn't have done anything and wouldn't have done anything. Nobody had to die for David to have this experience. So Nathan says, you're the one king. David had already said, whoever did it ought to die. You're the one king, but don't kill yourself. And nobody else is going to kill you. We don't want to discipline our king. God does not want you punished or disciplined. God wants you to wake up from your error and to walk straight. You're the one who has harmed our community. You're the one who has altered our expectations. You're the one who needs to straighten yourself out so that you can be the king we deserve to have you be. You're the one, Central. You're the one that dropped the ball. You're the one who left the light on in the bathroom all night long. You're the one that let the campfire go out. You're the one who left our door unlocked. The one who ate the last piece of cheesecake. You're the one who failed to yield right of way to another driver. You're the one, and we've all been there. We've all been the one. The one at fault, as we look at a situation that's gone wrong, we are all the one who is the reason that the situation went wrong. And it goes even deeper than those examples I offered you. We stay in this situation. We continue to be the one. We continue to be at fault in some things of far greater consequence than those that I just named. You're the one that started the lies and deception that took us into harm's way. Each of you, not one or the other, each of you, you're the one who started those lies. I'm the one who participated in fomenting hate by my misrepresentations of who you are. How many people are seen on our television each day telling us all about some folks that they've never met? You're the one who led me to think what I may think about a Muslim person or a 
Buddhist person or a Native American person or an African American person or a gay person. You're the one who caused me to disrespect all of these people in such ways. You're the one and I'm the one. We are all guilty of messing each other's thinking up. If all we had done is go sleep with Bathsheba, we wouldn't be as bad off as we are. You're the one, as am I, who robbed the potential of a generation of children by teaching and nurturing them too little and molding them into our own image too much. You're the one who complains about your credit score, which truthfully says you don't pay your bills on time. You're the one. As I chose a personal story to tell in this sermon, there were some that would have been better sermon illustrations than the one I chose but too painful to speak. And so I chose this story about a church program at one of the churches I have been the pastor of. And this was going to be an afternoon program one Sunday and I was the pastor and I led in the planning of this event and as the time for the event approached. We divvied up responsibilities and duties, and I was at the head of that planning, and everybody had something to do, and something was assigned to everybody, and everything that needed assigning was assigned to somebody. And as the day came, I began to wonder, is Sue doing what she's supposed to do? Has Jeannie made the calls she promised to make? Has Eric planned the opening statement? Has Bill checked on the technology at the church? I, I was busy keeping an eye on everything that everybody was supposed to do. And the day came, and a wonderful program happened in a nearly empty sanctuary because I was the one responsible for publicity, and instead of doing my job, I had been busy worrying about everybody else doing theirs. And every one of us sitting here today has been to such afternoon or evening programs. I failed. I was the one to let folks know what we had planned and I failed. And afterwards I found Nathan showing up in my prayer time. Nathan came to see me in my prayer time. Nathan showed up in my bathroom mirror. Nathan wrote me notes and text messaged me. Nathan called me on the phone. And every time Nathan contacted me, Nathan spoke those words again. You're the one. 
find your Nathan. You need a Nathan. Everybody needs a Nathan. And the good news is you've got one. You've got a Nathan, but you need to find your Nathan. You won't always like what Nathan has to say, but listen to what Nathan tells you. Nathan is working for the Lord. Listen to Nathan. He's got nothing against you. Nathan is God's messenger. We all need a Nathan in our lives, if for no other reason than to deliver a simple but essential message. You're the one. 